And if you have your Bibles, would you please turn to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you're wondering where 1 Corinthians is, it's in the second half of your Bible called your New Testament. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in just a moment, we're going to be reading something out loud together. And so as you're flipping or scrolling to it, it's also on the screen. I'd like to invite everyone just to stand up real quick right now as we read scripture together. I encourage you to read in a big, loud voice as we get into 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 to 5. Would you help me read in this place this morning? Let's all say this out loud together. It says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. We're doing a series here at Thrive. It's called Overcome My Unbelief. And in this series, we're talking about some of the biggest questions that people have about the Christian faith. Some, in some cases, they're the biggest criticisms or objections that people have about the Christian faith. And one by one, we've been dealing with each one. And today, we've, we're talking about a very special topic. Before I tell you what it is, let me tell you, you, you know that this series is maybe a little bit more technical than what we're used to here at Thrive. But that's a good thing. It's an important thing. Because if you're here and you're you know, questioning things, if you're exploring faith issues, you're not a Christian, but you've got questions, we're so glad that you're here. Your questions are safe here. And my hope is that you'll find some real help from what we're talking about in this series, including today. Maybe you're here and you're just like, you know what? I don't care about these more intellectual issues. I know what I believe in my heart and that's good enough for me. Well, let me tell you this, is that this series is for you too. It's because God doesn't just say, love the Lord your God with all your heart. He says, use your mind as well. And you're going to find this is if you don't think about these issues, there'll come a day when people will ask you why you believe and you will have no idea how to answer them. You can't give good rational reasons for your faith. And that's why First Peter chapter 3 says that we want to be able to give a reason for why we hope. And so this is so important, not just for your sake, but for the friends that you have in your life, your family members that have questions. You're here, I believe, not just for you, but because God loves Vancouver. And that because God made you to be a blessing to others. And so I hope you find this a really helpful series. We're talking today about a very important question. Can I really trust the Bible? That's the topic for today. And so as you're taking your seats, would you turn to your neighbors and with a smile on your face or maybe a quizzical look on your face, you can say, can I really trust the Bible? Can I really trust the Bible? Please have your seats. Please have your seats. Can I really trust the Bible? This is a huge topic. It's so huge that we could actually do a 10-week series on this, which we may do one day. What I want to do today is in one single session, I want to give an overview of some of the biggest, most critical, most common questions and even objections people have when it comes to the Bible and how you can respond to them. Questions like, you know, isn't the Bible full of mistakes and contradictions? You know, isn't the Bible something that's changed over the centuries, that's been copied? You know, didn't people just make up the Bible for political reasons so they could exert power on other, on other, on other people? Aren't the Gospels full of myths and legends that were written and developed, you know, like hundreds of years after Jesus supposedly lived? Isn't the Bible full of these outdated, irrelevant teachings that don't apply to us today? What about, you know, all those other books that never made it into the Bible? But what about those? See, these are the kind of questions that we want to explore And there are so many questions you could ask, but I I would tell you this, is that I believe that in the end, whether or not you can trust the Bible hinges on three big questions. And those three questions, one builds on top of the other. We're going to look at each of these three today. The first question is the question of textual credibility. 
It's the idea that can I trust that the Bible we have in our hands today is an accurate copy of what was written centuries ago? Because if this is not an accurate copy, if I can't trust that what I have in my hands is even accurate compared to what was written thousands of years ago, then why should I read it? Why should I trust it? That's the first question. The second question is the question of historical reliability. Is that even if this Bible in my hands is copied accurately, can I trust what it says? You know, the Bible is not just a history book. It's a collection of actually 66 books written by 40 different authors over a period of about 1,500 years. And as a result, what you're going to find in the Bible is all sorts of different types and genres of writing. There's poetry, there's prophecy, but there's also a lot of history. And in fact, the Christian faith is built upon certain historical events being true, such as the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If these aren't true, or if these historical events are not accurately portrayed in this Bible, then how can we trust what the Bible says? That's the second question. The third question is this. It's the question of spiritual authority. Is even if the Bible was accurately copied down from the centuries, even if the Bible is relevant and reliable history, then how can I trust the Bible as God's word? Isn't it just based on what human beings have written? And now, because of time constraints today, today we're going to focus primarily on the New Testament, although all these things we're talking about, a lot of them can be talked about with respect to the Old Testament as well. Are you guys ready here in this place this morning? Let's get into it right now. Let's look at question number one. The question that we're looking at first is the question of textual credibility. Can we trust that the Bible is an accurate copy of whatever was written originally centuries ago? For example, have you ever played the game telephone with your friends before? You know, the game telephone, you line up a bunch of people. The first person in line has a message. They whisper the message to the next person. No one else can hear it. The second person goes, ah, okay. And he speaks it into the next person's ear and so forth and so forth until finally get to the last person in line. That last person blurts out what they got as the final message. And everyone has this big chuckle because it's so different from the original message. Why do I mention, mention that? It's, how do you know that the Bible wasn't just like that? How do you know that the Bible wasn't just the product of this centuries-old game of telephone? Because keep in mind, for the first 15 centuries of the early church, there weren't any computers, there weren't cameras, there weren't photocopiers, there wasn't even a printing press. And so what you had instead were these scribes who would copy the Bible by hand from one generation to the next. And so how do you know that no one made a mistake? How do we know that no, nothing was intentionally changed up? It's with that concern in mind that there's a journalist called Kurt Eichenwald who, is from, uh, who wrote for Newsweek at some point. And this is what he wrote. He said, no television preacher has ever read the Bible, neither has any evangelical politician, neither has the Pope, neither have I, and neither have you. At best, we've all read a bad translation, a translation of translations of translations of hand-copied copies of copies of copies of copies, and on and on and on hundreds of times. What can we say in response to something like that? Well, first of all, let's take a look. He says, this thing in our hands right now, this book, this Bible, is a bad translation of translation translation. That's actually, that's actually not true. See, the Bible you have in your hands is a translation, not of another translation, of another translation, but it's a translation from the original languages of the Bible, which are Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And, and when, for centuries now, translations are not based on another language, from another language, from another from, from language. It wasn't like, you know, these, the, the, these translators, they took the original Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, and then they first translated into Latin, then they translated to Italian, then they translated to Japanese, and finally translated to English, and this is what we get. No. These, these translators, they, they would take the original language, they translate into English. And for centuries, they've been, ably, been, been able to do that. And so the claim that it's a translation of a translation of a translation is false. It's a misunderstanding 
understanding of how Bible translations work. The second thing is this. How many of us know that because the Bible is an ancient document, it matters how many copies of this document we have? In fact, let me just show you a chart. And this chart will help me illustrate something, which is this, is that you're going to find that of all the ancient documents that are in existence in the world today, nothing compares to the Bible in terms of how many copies we have and how early those copies are. And that's important because if we're trying to get the original message, the more copies you have, the better, because you can cross-reference, you can check, you can cross-check with one another. And so that's a really important thing. So let's look at, let, 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 look at a few examples here. There is Thucydides. He's a historian. Uh, one of the best-known historians of the Greco-Roman Empire, and he wrote a history of the Greco-Roman Empire. And there are eight copies of this book that are now still around. The earliest of them was written 1,300 years after the original. Aristotle, the philosopher, he wrote the Poetics. There are now five copies of this available in the world today, and the earliest copy we have right now is 1,400 years after its original. Another one is Alexander the Great. He didn't write but himself, but he had biographies written of him. There are only two actual copies of his biography in existence today, and the earliest one that we, one that we have is, 1400 year, is, 14, is 400 years after the original. Now, how does that compare with the New Testament? Let's take a look. See, the New Testament has not just eight or five or two copies out there. We have over 5,000 copies of the New Testament. And the earliest copy we have is actually a fragment of the New Testament that comes not 1,500 years or you know, even 400 years, but 50 years after its original. The, the first available, earliest available copy of the entire New Testament we have is not thousands of years later. It's 225 years after the original. And so Sir Frederick G. Kenyon, who is the former director of the British Museum, he looked at that. He said this. He said, in no other case is the interval of time between the composition of a book and the date of the early extant, that means existing manuscripts, so short as that in the New Testament. William F. Albright, who's an archaeologist, he looked at it and said, you know what, no other work from Greco-Roman antiquity is so well attested by manuscript tradition as the New Testament. There are many more early manuscripts of the New Testament than there are of any classical author. And see, so we've got more copies, more early copies of the Bible than we have of any other document in human history. Still, you might ask, well, were there copying errors? Well, let's talk about that right now. There's a professor called Bart, uh, Bart Ehrman, and uh, he teaches religious studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And he wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why. And this is what he says. He claims that in the Bible, there are more than 400,000 errors. And he says, New Testament copies all differ from one another in many thousands of places. How do you respond to something like that? Well, we need to take a closer look at what he's actually saying. See, when Bart Ehrman claims that there are more than 400,000 errors in the Bible, he's not saying that when you open the Bible, you're going to find 400,000 individual errors in the Bible. You know what he's talking about? He's saying that he looked at one manuscript and he saw that there were two different ways that someone was spelling a word. That's an error. And then he said, okay, that's one error. How many copies of this do we have out there in the world? Oh, there's 400 copies. 400 errors. But it's, even, it's, it's just one spelling issue. And, what, and, and, you know, and so, you know, if, if you were to do that, if you were to take the same logic and apply it to Bart Ehrman's own book, Misquoting Jesus, he has 16 typos in his book. And since there are 100,000 copies in print, there are 1.6 million errors 
in his book. See, it's a grossly inflated number that gives you a really exaggerated and unrealistic view of what's actually going on. So don't be too flustered when you say, oh, 400,000 errors. It's not quite like that. And still, are there variations in the manuscripts from time to time? Yes, there are. And in most cases, it's differences in spelling a word that don't affect the meaning. In fact, according to Sean McDowell, he's a professor at Bio University. He says it this way. He says, less than 1% of all the variants across these manuscripts have any Anything to do with the meaning, less than 1%. And none of those that have to do with the meaning have anything to do with a central doctrine or important event in Christian history. And so in the whole Bible, less than 1% of any variance you see in the manuscripts has anything to do with the meaning. They're all just like spelling stuff, like, you know, and grammar stuff. And, and so it's like 1% of, 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 the, of the whole Bible, only 1% deal with meaning, and none of those deal with an important doctrine in Christianity. None of them affect the Christian faith. None of them talk, to, talk about an important historical event that we build the Christian faith on. And so it's okay. And see, on that note, I should note to you that there are two passages in the New Testament that are probably not where they were originally. And that they were probably not originally there in the beginning. Which ones are they? There's Mark chapter 16, 9 to 20. And there's John chapter 7, verse 53 to chapter 8, verse 11. And you, some of you, if you know your Bible uh, a bit, you might know, oh yeah, that, that, that John chapter 7, verse 53, that's the, that's the story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. Where, you know, he, he writes in the ground and he says, uh, you know, she's, she's supposed to be stoned. He's like, you know, let's say, let, 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 let the first person who doesn't have any sin be the first to stone her. That, those stories, those two passages were probably not in the original manuscripts. And in fact, the Bible doesn't try to hide that fact. It actually shows it to you right there. If you go to your Bible, you'll actually find a note that says the earliest manuscripts do not have this passage. So the Bible's not trying to hide anything. If there's any passage dispute, they'll actually say it. There'll actually be a footnote there to show in some manuscripts it says this instead. And so the Bible is honest about it. And thankfully, none of these variations, these variants as they call them, affect the meaning of a passage or affect what we believe in the Christian faith. That's why New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce writes this way. He says, there is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. So to answer the question of textual credibility, can you trust that the Bible we have today is an accurate copy of the original documents from centuries ago? Yes, you can. 99.99%. See, the Bible is the most textually credible ancient document in human history. Far more than any ancient document that has ever been written. We can have tremendous confidence that the Bible used today is an accurate copy of the original documents from centuries ago. That's the first question. It's the question of textual credibility. Let's go on to the next question. The next question is about the question of historical reliability is that even if the Bible was copied accurately, how do we know that what it says is true? Especially when it comes to history, when it comes to the life and the death and the apparent resurrection of Jesus Christ. How do we know that we can trust the Bible on these things? Sometimes we'll hear people say, oh, you know what? You can't trust the Bible. You can't trust what it says about Jesus. You can't trust the Gospels. It's because they're all full of myths and legends that were developed centuries after Jesus even lived, if he lived at all. And who knows? But see, here's the thing. First, 
concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you have questions about the resurrection of Jesus, if you're wondering about the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, there was a sermon I preached about a year ago in April 2019 called Resurrection, Fact, or Fiction. And because of time, we don't have time to get into all that evidence. I want to point you to that sermon because if you've got questions about the New Testament and its reliability, if you've got questions about the Gospels, if you've got questions about Jesus' resurrection, then this message will talk about some evidence that we're not going to cover today, but is so important. I find that there's a number of people since preaching that message where they've come up to me and said that was a really significant message for them. And if you've got questions similarly, I encourage you to look at that. We're going to look at some other evidence today. Because the fact is that historians use several different kinds of tests to determine whether an ancient document is actually historically reliable. And we're not going to look at all of these tests today. We're just going to look at three. The first one's called the multiple sources test or the multiple attestation attestation test, is this idea of how many different sources talk about the same historical event. We do that ourselves. You know, if we hear about, oh, there's a, someone says, oh, there's a sale at Costco. Everything is 80% off. You're like, no way. If one person says it, you're like, no, that never happens. And then, and then someone else, independent of them, says, yeah, I, I just went there. It's 80%. If you hear from multiple people independently, they didn't collude and conspire together to, to pull a prank on you, but you hear from multiple sources, you hear it on the radio, you hear it on the news, you hear it on, on the phone, then you're like, okay, I can believe this a little bit more. Historians apply the same kind of logic. Is that, are there how many sources out that are independent of one another that talk about the same event. And well, we've got first the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who all wrote their Gospels independently of one another. But on top of that, do you know that in addition to the four Gospels in uh, the Bible, in the New Testament, Jesus, as a historical figure, is mentioned in at least 11 non-Christian historical writings from ancient times, from, from antiquity. For example, let me give you a few. Tacitus. Tacitus, he's known as the greatest historian of ancient Roman times. If you know anything about uh, Nero, the emperor, then you most likely learned it from a guy called Tacitus or a book that he wrote. And and see, Tacitus, he writes, then he confirms that Jesus' execution under Pontius Pilate happened. He said Pontius Pilate executed Jesus. There's another one called uh, called Mara Bar Serepion. And he writes that Jesus was a wise king who was martyred by his own people, but is still remembered today. This is a non-Christian writing about Jesus. There's other ones. Thallus, Pliny the Younger, uh, uh, Suetonius, uh, Lucian of Samosata, Celsius. There's also Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian. He wasn't Christian, and yet he mentions Jesus on two occasions. He, on, on, on the first time, Josephus rem- remembers Jesus as a famous teacher and healer who was executed under Pontius Pilate. The second time Josephus mentions Jesus, he says that Jesus had a brother called James who was executed as well, and that Jesus was known by the title, the Christ. And so this is a non-Christian identifying and affirming the fact that there's this healer, there's this teacher called Jesus who lived, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and that he went by the title Christ. And this is now recognized by professional historians all over the world as facts beyond a reasonable doubt. And so when you hear an atheist author like Richard Dawkins, who wrote The God Delusion, saying, suggesting that there is no historical basis for even the existence of Jesus Christ. See, the fact is no historian in their right mind would agree with that conclusion. The claim that Jesus did not exist might make for a sexy headline or a book, but there's no historical basis for it. That's the first test that historians apply. Here's a second test. It's what we call the time gap test. 
and or the early evidence test. And what is the time gap test? The time gap test is we ask, what is the gap in time between the event taking place and that ancient person writing about that event? And of course, as a historian, you want to see that there is a small gap, as small as possible of a gap between the time the event took place and when that person started writing. And so, you know, because there's a couple of reasons. The smaller the time gap, the less likely it is for fictional legends and myths to start developing, influencing what we see in that event. Number two, the smaller the time gap, the more eyewitnesses are still alive to either confirm or deny what that person is writing. So, for example, you say I'm writing a book, or if maybe I'm just posting on Facebook or posting on Instagram, and I say, you know, 1990 was a tumultuous year. You know, 30 years ago, 1990, after the nuclear war between Canada and the U.S., the Vancouver Canucks won the Stanley Cup. And, you know, the number one song everyone was singing was, say my name, say my name. And and, and see, if if I said all that, made all these claims about what happened in 1990, those of you, and that, that would be a lot of you, who were born around that time, were alive around that time, you'd be standing up and you'd be saying, no I was there in 1990. That did not happen. The Canada was not in a nuclear war with the U.S. The, no, the Canucks did not win the Stanley Cup then. They still haven't won the Stanley Cup now. <laughs> and Destiny's Child that made famous, say my name, say my name, they were nine years old. They weren't around back then. In fact, everyone wasn't singing, say my name, say my name. You know what they were singing? They were singing, ice, ice, baby. Dun, 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 dun. That's what they were singing. See, in other words, you got eyewitnesses who are alive who can confirm or deny what took place. And that's why having a small time gap is important. And so with that in mind, let's do some comparisons here. Let's look at some comparisons. Look at Muhammad. Muhammad is the founder of Islam. His earliest biography was written and finalized 170 years after his death. 170 years. There is Siddhartha Gautama, who later became known as the Buddha. And his earliest biography was written 350 years after his death. You got the Roman Emperor Tiberius. His most trusted biography was written approximately 80 years after his death. How does that compare with the life of Jesus and the Gospels? Let me tell you. Jesus' life was recorded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And those Gospel writers wrote between 30 to 50 years after Jesus' death. That's much, much shorter. Jesus' life, as recorded by John, who wrote the last gospel, that was, if we were to use even secular dating, which always wants to date things as late as possible, they would date it about 65 years after Jesus' death. What are we saying here? Is that there is earlier documentary evidence for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus than there are for almost any other figure in ancient history, whether they're religious or political. Even more. This morning, at the beginning of this message, you helped me read a passage from 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 5. Can we take a look at it one more time? Can you read it with me one more time? What does it say? It says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Now, I want you to pay attention to this. See, scholars agree that the Apostle Paul, who wrote this down, is quoting a Christian song, 
a Christian creed. It was a declaration of the Christian faith that Christians would recite in their worship services. And so it was part of, just like we sing songs at the beginning of our service, they had you know, a declaration, a song that they would sing about Jesus. And scholars agree that this song predates Paul by about 20 years. And if you start working backwards, you're going to find that this song was starting to be sung by Christians within not decades, not years, but months after Jesus' death. And see, what does that tell you? It tells you that Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, post-resurrection appearances, these weren't myths and legends that people developed centuries after Jesus lived. These were things that people were preaching about, talking about, singing about months after Jesus left this earth. And so when people say, though, you know, the New Testament, you can't trust it because it was written hundreds of years after Jesus when all these legends and myths, you know, started to seep into our understanding. How could you possibly trust it? That's not the case at all. That's why New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce writes it this way. He says, if the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would generally be, be regarded as beyond all doubt. See, no one questions, did Julius Caesar cross the river Rubicon? No, no one questions what happened in the histories and biographies of Alexander the Great, even though these were written so much later, but they'll question Jesus. They'll question, oh, did Jesus really live? Did Jesus really say those things? In part because this document means something. If it is true and the claims in it are true, it has the deepest impact on every single person on this earth. And that's why Clark Pinnock, former skeptic who turned into a Christian theologian, he said this. He said, there exists no document from the ancient world witnessed by so excellent a set of textual and historical testimonies. Skepticism regarding the historical credentials of Christianity is based upon an irrational bias. In other words, you need to be pretty much irrational to believe that the New Testament is not historically reliable. Here's another test. Here's another It's the test of archaeology. Is there any evidence other than these documents we're talking about that confirm the events and the places that the Bible talks about and shows that they really happen? Let's, let me share just a couple with you today. See, in John chapter 5, if you go to John chapter 5, you're going to hear and read about, you know, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's by what's called the Sheep Gate, Sheep Gate, where there was a pool of five covered colonnades. And for decades, archaeologists were puzzled by that. Like, it just seems like such a strange pool. A lot of people thought, he must be making this up. And in fact, they, they went, they started digging around Jerusalem, didn't find this pool. And so when, when university professors got wind of this, they started you know, preaching to everyone, you know what? You cannot trust the Bible. Look, that pool does not even exist. But then years later, archaeologists with more advanced technology, they went back to that same site. They started digging a little bit deeper, and they found the sheep gate. They found those five covered colonies. Now you could pay you know, many thousands of dollars to go to Israel and Jerusalem and see them yourselves, or you can Google it. You can find a picture of it. You, you, you see that they found the five covered colonies and that beautiful pool. Another thing is this. Sir William Ramsey, he's an archaeologist. He spent 15 years trying to show that the Gospel of Luke and its sequel called the Book of Acts were not historical documents. So he actually went to the places that Luke talked about in Acts with the goal of showing by archaeology, see, Luke was making this stuff up. He goes to Asia Minor. He goes to these different cities and these places that apparently were there that Luke said, and all with the goal of saying, see, 
nothing there. And after 15 years of digging up towns and cities and artifacts and documents, he came to a different conclusion. Is that Sir William Ramsey realized Luke was right the whole entire time. And in fact, he writes it this way. He says, Further study showed that the book of Acts, written by Luke, could bear the most minute scrutiny as an authority for the facts of the Aegean world. That's the world of that time. And that it was written with such judgment, skill, art, and perception of truth as to be a model of historical statement. In other words, he's saying, you know, Acts, written by Luke, is first-rate history. And then he goes on to say, Luke is a historian of the first rank. This author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. This was a skeptic who tried to prove Luke wrong through archaeology, and through archaeology realized that Luke was actually bang on on what he was talking about. Nelson Gluck, he's an American rabbi, also an archaeologist, he says it this way. He says, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted, that means refuted, a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline and clear detail historical statements in the Bible. And so has archaeology been of use to showing that the Bible and especially the New Testament are reliable? Absolutely. Archaeology is a friend to the New Testament. Now, some people might say, well, isn't the Bible full of contradictions though? See, Steve Wells, he has dedicated much of his life to trying to convince people that you can't trust the Bible because there are so many contradictions. He even published a book called The Skeptic's annotated Bible. And in there, he lists over 500 of what he considers to be contradictions in the Bible, where one place in the Bible contradicts another place in the Bible. And other atheists, they, they, they saw this and they highly praised the work. And so I thought, you know, I should probably take a look at this. And so I decided to take a look at this skeptic's annotated Bible. And I spent a good chunk of time looking at what Steve Wells considers to be contradictions in the Bible. I went through over 100 of them. And this is what I found. There were probably less than a handful maybe two or three contradictions that I would consider to be intelligent questions about the Bible. Nothing that affected the heart of the Christian faith, but interesting question. The rest of his contradictions, though, and that means about 98% of the ones I reviewed, made me say one phrase out loud over and over again as I would read them. I would look at it and go, oh my goodness. Like, almost like when you're hearing a bad joke and you can't believe the person even thought about, you know, dared to even say it. Like, oh my goodness, that's bad. And, and see, I, and, and see let, let me give you some examples. Uh, for example, how, he, he'll ask a question. How long would the Israelites be in Egypt? And then he brings two parts. Genesis 15, 13 says, could you read it with me? It says, then the Lord said to him, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. Everyone say 400 years. And now let's look at Exodus 12, 40. What does it say? It says, Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. Everyone say 430. All right. So according to Steve Wells, this is a contradiction. 400 versus 430. The Bible is contradicting itself. Now let's kind of unpack this a bit. Say in one sermon I tell you, uh, you know, I lived in Taiwan for four years from 2003 to 2007. And then say in another sermon, I say, my wife and I lived in Taiwan for three years and nine months. Can I ask you this? Am I contradicting myself? Or are these just two different ways of saying the same thing, one more detailed than another? See, according to Steve Wells' logic, I've contradicted myself twice. Because four years is not the same as three years and nine months. 
And it's not just in the first time you said you went to Taiwan. In the second time you said you and your wife went to Taiwan. Contradiction. Well, here's it. The fact is this. Is God allowed to talk in round numbers? Of course he is. Of course he is. But even more than that, is that there's another possibility as to why Genesis says 400 years and Exodus says 430 years. Let me tell you why. See, Genesis is talking about how long the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. Exodus is talking about how long the Israelites were living in Egypt. And if you read your Bible, you'll notice that the Israelites were not always slaves in Egypt. Is that that first generation of Israelites was Joseph and his brothers and their families. And back then, were they slaves? No, they weren't. In fact, Joseph was the prime minister. And they enjoyed prosperity. The the Bible says that they were fruitful and multiplied. But then when that generation died, i.e. 25 to 30 years later, a new king of Egypt rose up who didn't acknowledge the contributions of Joseph. And so he put all of Joseph and the Israelites to slavery. And so the Israelites lived in Egypt for 400 years as per Genesis, but they were only enslaved in Egypt for about 400, which is as, as, per, as, as per Exodus. Or I, I flipped it. It's Exodus is, is 430 years as per, uh, uh, as per Exodus, 400 as per Genesis. Does it make sense? Does it make sense? See, had Steve Wells just read his Bible a little bit more closely, had he appreciated the way the Bible is written, had he understood a little bit more the context and the core message of Christianity, he would not be raising these as issues or as contradictions. What's the lesson here? Is that when you come up with, uh, you know, something that you think might be a contradiction in the Bible, or when you hear someone else, oh, there's a contradiction in the Bible, look more closely to see if it really is a contradiction or it's just a careless misreading of the Bible. It's very, very important. Here's another thing. What about the gospel of Thomas? What about the gospel of Mary? Some of you guys are flipping through your Bible. Where is that? You know, it's not in your Bible. See, these are other books that existed in ancient times that were not included in what's called the New Testament canon, which is the list of standard authorized books that became the New Testament. And see, if you are familiar with the Da Vinci Code, which is a best-selling book. It's now a Hollywood movie franchise. The Da Vinci Code tells the story of how for the first four centuries, there was a sea of books about Jesus, all equally meritorious, all equally accepted, all, you know, frequently used. But then in 325 AD, at Emperor Constantine's command, the Council of Nicaea was formed. And the bishops at that time, in the hopes of pleasing Constantine, in the hopes of silencing certain doctrines that they didn't want the church to know about, is they just kind of picked four gospels and they censored everything else and, 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 you know, including embarrassing material about Jesus having a love affair with Mary Magdalene, all that stuff. See, that story makes for interesting Hollywood material for sure. It, it's, it's great for selling books, but there's no basis for it in history. See, the historical evidence shows that this Council of Nicaea in 325 was not for the purpose of determining which books go into the New Testament. See, that's because by about 110 to 180 AD, that's about 150 to 200 years before the Council of Nicaea, the early church already had a general consensus about a vast majority of the books that make up the New Testament, including the four Gospels. And and those other writings that came up, like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Peter, that these came up 
after that general consensus was pretty much already there. And so how did the early church decide which books to include? Let me tell you right now. See, for the early church, it wasn't this attitude of, you know, haha, we get to decide what is God's word. Ha ha ha. When you read the writings, there's this reverence for God's word. See, you know, something's been handed down to us, and we need to protect it as best we can. And this is what we find, is that there were four questions or four tests Four criteria that the early church used to determine whether a book was divinely inspired. And they look at four tests. They're big words, but we'll unpack each one. The first test is what's called the apostolicity test. What does that mean? Was it written by an apostle that Jesus personally commissioned? Was it written by someone that Jesus personally said, you are an apostle? Or was it written by a close companion who worked with that apostle? The second question they ask is about antiquity. In other words, how early was this book written? The third test they ask is how consistent, when you read this book, how consistent are its teachings and its contents compared to what we've already come to know about Jesus' teachings? And then the fourth test is called the use test. It's when you look at the churches all around the known Christian world at the time, are they using this book? Do they use it? Do they, do they read it? Do they study it? And so let's look, for example, if you go in your Bibles to the Gospel of Thomas. Go to the Gospel of, I'm coming. It's not, in the, it's not in your Bibles. See, the Gospel of Thomas is not in your Bibles, but we're gonna, I'm going to show you an excerpt from this Gospel of Thomas that didn't make it into the, the New Testament. This is what it says. This is an excerpt from it. It says, Simon Peter said to them, Let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay? Now, before we talk about how kind of strange that sounds, the early church still, in all fairness, considered the Gospel of Thomas. And they went through their tests anyways. And said, okay, let's look at how this book was written. Was it written by an apostle or a close companion of an apostle that Jesus personally commissioned? Thomas sounds like a great name, right? It's one of the disciples of Jesus. But you look at when it was written. It was written into the late second century when that was over 100 years after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written. That was probably, in all likelihood, unless Thomas lived till two, 300 years old, Thomas was not there. And it's highly improbable that he would have had authorized someone else to write it for him. And so based on that, it fails the apostolicity test and the antiquity test. Now let's look at what it actually says. The early church then used the orthodoxy test. Is it consistent with what we know Jesus has taught? And so they looked at it and they, 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 they read it out. They're like, okay, Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. They looked at it and go, what? See, if, when did Jesus ever say, if a woman wants to enter the kingdom of God, she needs to become male. She needs to become a man. If you read the gospels, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're gonna see Jesus valued women that he affirmed their identity as female, as women. He, challenged, he championed their cause when others wouldn't. And, and, so, and he would say, women as women belong in the kingdom of God. Amen. And see, the Gospel of Thomas fails on the orthodoxy test. Finally, the Gospel of Thomas was put through the last test, which is the use test. And they, they'd ask, okay, okay can, can we do a survey, guys? All these churches that we know of, are you guys using the Gospel of Thomas? Are you reading it? Are you studying it? Do you guys cherish it? Do you guys derive wisdom and inspiration from it? And the report came back going, no, we don't. We don't, we, we actually, the, we, we don't really know what this is about. 
And, and so when you, and in fact, when you look at the different lists of church leaders that would come in and talk about, these are, the, these are the books we're reading in our church. These are the gospels we're looking at. None of them mention the gospel of Thomas. In fact, the only gospel they mentioned are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And see, here's the thing. The, God, the, the, the Da Vinci Code says that the forming of the New Testament was this political ploy. It was this manipulative plot to silence a majority and, and gain power from a minority. That's simply not true. It makes for great Hollywood material, but it's simply not historical. Is this helpful in this place so far? Let's look at one final question, and that's the question of spiritual authority. See, if the Bible was copied accurately, and if the Bible is also historically reliable, well, there's a third question. Can I trust the Bible as God's word? Let's look at that right now. See, you might be hearing, going, well, look at all the miracles in the Bible. Doesn't that show that the Bible is totally unscientific and you can't trust it? Let me just say this, because we touched on this in episode one and two of our series. Uh, what's the greatest miracle in the Bible? You might think of maybe one or two or three that have, uh, you know, have a contender's status there. What's the greatest miracle in the Bible? I'll tell you, the greatest miracle in the Bible is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And see, in episode two of our series, Overcome My Unbelief, we showed that there is strong scientific evidence that points to the idea that there was a God, an intelligent, powerful being who stands outside of time and space, who brought this universe into being through something called the Big Bang. And he made something out of nothing. And as a result, we have this amazing universe that we live in. And there is good scientific evidence to believe that. Now, if there is good evidence to believe that God accomplished the greatest miracle in the Bible, Genesis 1-1, then it's not irrational to then believe that God could do smaller miracles, like subverting the laws of nature so that the Red Sea could part, or allowing a big fish to, to swallow Jonah whole without killing him, or you know, Jesus feeding the 5,000, or Jesus rising from the dead. If, if God could do the biggest miracle of all, of creating something out of nothing and creating the universe that we have today, and there is good evidence to believe it scientifically and otherwise, then it's not irrational to believe that God is able to accomplish the smaller miracles that we talk about in the Bible. Amen? They're very important. Another one that people sometimes say is, oh, you know, I don't agree with the Bible and what it says about X, whether X is about sex or X is about the treatment of women or slavery. And so because of that, because I don't believe what it says about that, I don't agree with it, it can't be God's word. Well, let me respond to that in a few ways. Number one, make sure you really understand what the Bible is saying about X, whatever it might be, treatment of women, slavery, sex, before you jump to the conclusion that the Bible is not trustworthy. I have so many conversations with people where they have all these negative conclusions about what the Bible says, but they've never read the Bible. Or they've read like a little, they've read one verse, and then all of a sudden they're like, no, it can't be God's word. You know, that, that's, that's really, really silly. Second thing is this. Don't assume that the values of our mainstream culture in 2020 North America today are inherently superior to the values you find in the Bible. That's a really prideful way to think of things. Oh, the Bible's just regressive in its teachings. It's regressive culturally in its values. You know, that's a really prideful way to think of it. And, and, what, and for as long as you have that attitude when you read the Bible, you're going to make all sorts of prejudgments, and you're not going to get anything out of the Bible, and you're not going to understand what it's actually saying. Third thing is this. Just because you don't like or don't agree with what the Bible says about X, that in itself doesn't mean it's not God's word. See, like, since when did God need your approval before he says something? 
See, part of recognizing the Bible as God's word is that God is able, he has all authority to say anything that he wants, and it doesn't matter if you agree with it. It doesn't matter if you even understand. In fact, the fact that it's God's word probably means there will be a bunch of things that we don't fully understand, but that's called humility. And the moment you start to say, I will not treat the Bible as God's word and I don't believe the Bible as God's word because I don't believe, I don't agree and I don't like what it says about this, then what you're doing actually is you're trying to create God in your image. And you're basically saying, you know what, unless God conforms to my image and my idea of everything, then there's, there's not God, that, that's not God's word. If that's you, then I would submit that not only do you, have room, do you have no room for the Bible, I would submit that you might not have any room for God. Because you're too busy and too occupied, uh, uh, preoccupied with being God yourself. And so it's about time to say, you know what, just because you don't like or agree with what God's word says, it doesn't mean that it's not God's word. So those are three important things to keep in mind as we go into this final section, which is for four reasons you can trust the Bible to be God's word. If you're doing Thrive Disciple School with us right now, you might be familiar with this already, but let's take a look at it together right now. How and why can we believe that the Bible isn't just accurate history, it's not just an accurate copy, it's not just reliable history, but it is the word of God. Let me give you four, uh, four reasons just for today. Reason number one, the Bible is supernaturally unique in its formation. See, with other so-called holy books out there, you know, the Book of Mormon, the Bhagavad Gita, the Quran, you know, these are written by one individual at one point in history saying, voila, this is the word of God. With the Bible, it's completely different. The Bible is not written just by one person at one time saying, this is the word of God. The Bible is a collection of 66 books written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors from different cultures, different backgrounds, different countries, different vocations, different situations, and yet when you put it all together, it's amazing how like pieces of a puzzle from different centuries and different places around the world, it all fits together as one unified whole, one unified story. And it's not simply that they're all unified because they contain the letter B. It's not just because they're all unified because they all talk about God in a really vague way. No, they're unified in that they tell one specific story about how there is a God who loves, who loves human beings, who made them to love them, and because of sin, he decided I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to send my son, Jesus, a savior. And therefore, God is on a search and rescue mission to win back people back to himself. That is the story that comes out from Genesis to Revelation, cover to cover. It is, I believe, nothing short of a supernatural miracle that you have all this together. Number two, the Bible is supernaturally unique in its message. See, every other holy book and self-help book is going to talk about how you get to God. And they'll say, if you want to get to God, it's about what you have to do to get there. You have to earn your way to heaven. You got to earn your way to nirvana. You got to earn your way to enlightenment. You got to you know, get rid of your bad deeds and only do good deeds. And that way you'll have karma. That's, you know, you're going to get rid of karma so that you can, you know, in, 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 you reach enlightenment. It's all, it's all about what you have to do to get there. You can earn your way to heaven. The Bible's message is completely the opposite. It's the complete flip side. It is so counterintuitive. It's this idea that when we had no way of reaching for God on our own, when we couldn't reach God, no matter how hard we try, no matter how good you and I think we are, God didn't give up on us. He said, I love you. I don't want to spend eternity away from you. And so I'm going to do the only thing I can do. I'm going to come down and I'm going to die on the cross for your sins and my sins. And I'm going to, my son Jesus is going to pay the price that you were meant to pay 
pay, and he's going to take that debt. He's going to pay it on your behalf. He's going to die the most excruciating death, and then he's going to rise again to show that you have forgiveness, you have eternal life, and it's through Jesus Christ that you can come back to me. And see, it is the complete opposite message. It is so counterintuitive. To me, if I was writing a religious book, and I, I want to I start a new religion, I want to start you know, a new you know, holy book, the natural thing to talk about for all of us is you got to be a better person. You got to do more good things. Got to pray more. Got to help more people. You know, you got to walk more old people, old people across the street. You got to, you got to fast more. You got to do all these things. It's all about what we have to, because that's what we're used to. That's that's just that's just the world. That's life. That's you know, you put in your resume and you hope you get in. But the thing about the Bible is, it is the anti-religion. It says the complete opposite. And to me, that is supernaturally unique. It's completely different from anything else you will see in this world. Number three, the Bible is supernaturally unique in its power. There's a scientist and mathematician called Dr. Peter Stoner who tried to calculate the odds that 48 prophecies concerning the Messiah will be fulfilled by chance. And so he did his calculations, and he found that 48 prophecies from the Old Testament that are talking about one day God sending a Messiah who would fulfill a bunch of different, 48 different conditions. He said, you know, what are the chances that that would happen just by chance? What are the odds? And so he calculated it, and the final calculation he did after running through it over and over, he found that the, the, the odds of that happening by chance are 1 in 10 to the power of 157. And if you're wondering how low of a chance that is, well, let me just show you the number right there. That's how much of a chance it is that all the prophecies you see in the book, in the Old Testament, about the Messiah would all happen and come together by chance. Pastor Rick Warren said it well. He said this. He said, the Bible is the most despised, derided, denied, disputed, dissected, and debated book in all of history. This Bible has been under attack for centuries for everything you can imagine. Yet the Bible is still the most read, most published, and most translated book in the world. And most importantly, it's still changing the lives of those who apply what it teaches. More lives have been changed by this one book than any other book in human history. And, you know, I, I can say that not just, uh, you know, as a pastor. I can say that not just because of, you just look at the facts. You know, Christianity is the largest faith in all of human history. The church is the most diverse, the largest family that's ever existed. But I, but I also see it because it, I've, ha- I've seen it in my own life. Is that, you know, when I look back, I was like, you know, a teenager who was bullying people younger than me. Uh, who was, you know, really insecure about myself, who, you know, was pretty negative all the time, complaining a lot. And even as a teenager, when I heard about this gospel that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, and I, I, and I respond to that, you know what helped me grow in my relationship with God? You know what helped me really kind of get to know who this God is and experience him more in my life? You know, church is important. Church is necessary. Church is, church is great. Uh, it's important. You need to be in church. Having friends who, you know, who, who are maybe a bit older, that's important. You know, uh, songs, I love to sing, or at least not really so much then, but now I do. And, you know, having songs, that's great. But what helped me experience the power and the presence of God more than perhaps anything else, the number one factor was the Word of God. The number one factor was the Word of God. I'd, I'd take this outside. It was in the summer after I got baptized when I was 15, 16 years old. I'd just go out to the porch. I'd open the Bible. I had this legal pad. I'd just be reading from, like, the book of you know, Galatians or book of Colossians. And I didn't understand it all, hardly much at all, but whenever there was a verse that impacted me, I'd be like, I'll write that down. Oh, yeah, no, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yeah, in, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. 
you know, I, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. You know, I will never leave you or forsake you. Or stuff like, you know, you, you will walk through the fire and not be burned. And, and these impacted me so much that it changed my life. And I can say that there is power in this book that I've, I've read a lot of books. I've never found an equivalent power anywhere else in it, even a fraction of it compared to what we have in the Bible. It's because there is a unique, a supernaturally unique power that the Bible has to change lives. The Bible is not just given to us to inform. It's actually here to transform our lives. And it's so good at doing that better than any other book in the world. That's why it's the word of God. Number four, finally, if Jesus and the early church believed the Bible to be God's word, we can believe the Bible to be God's word too. Now, we can't go into detail about this one today. If you want to go into detail, I encourage you to take Thrive to Sepulchre School. But here's the thing. Anyone can say anything about the Bible and God these days. All you need is an internet connection. And, you know, people can voice all these different opinions and interpretations and all that stuff. The question is, can you back it up? And for Jesus, when he lived and died, he also did one more thing. He rose again. And that means that because he rose again, his claims about God, his claims of the Bible have far more weight than someone in the basement of their parents' house just kind of doing whatever they want and blasting thoughts online about the Bible. And so here's the question. How did Jesus see the Bible? Now, we're not going to go into detail like I said, but let me just say this. Jesus saw the Old Testament as the word of God. He affirmed it. He affirmed its history. He affirmed its meaning. He affirmed its power. He affirmed it as the word of God, as God speaking to us. He affirmed the Old Testament. And not only did Jesus affirm the Old Testament, he, he authorized the New Testament. He would say to his disciples, who would later become apostles, he would tell them that the spirit of truth, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, is going to guide you into all truth. And he's going to make known to you that which is mine. He's going to take what is mine, make known to you so you can make it known to the world. He's talking about one day these apostles will be taking the truth that Jesus has and he's going to, he's, they're, going to, they're going to receive it, they're going to write it down for the benefit of the entire church and for the world. And so Jesus affirmed the Old Testament as God's word and he authorized the writing of the New Testament as his word. And so for the early church, the books of the Old Testament and the writings of the apostles that they would go to church with and worship with, these all became the written word of God to them. And if Jesus and the early church believed the Bible to be God's word, I believe here today as the church in 2020, we have every reason to believe that the Bible is God's word as well. Can you really trust the Bible? The answer is yes. You can absolutely trust the Bible. You can trust the Bible to be an accurate copy of what was written centuries ago. You can trust the Bible to be a reliable account of the history that it talks about. And most of all, you can trust the Bible to be the word of God for you and for me. And so because and since the Bible is God's word, what do you want to do with it? Let me give you three suggestions. Number one, since the Bible is God's word, treasure your Bible. Don't take it for granted. Don't let it collect dust on your shelf or collect dust in your heart, but read it, study it. Get to know it as well as you can. If you're not really sure how, Thrive Disciple School is there to help you with that. Number two, since the Bible is God's word, trust God's promises in the Bible. What you need to hear in this tough time that you're going through right now, more than a word from any other person, you need a word from God. And the great thing about the Bible is that there are thousands of promises in the Bible that are for you and for me that we can apply reasonably, rationally, and relevantly to our lives. So trust God's promises in the Bible. Turn here and say, trust God's promises. Number three, and final thing, since the Bible is God's word, use it to encourage others. There are people that you go to school with. 
people that you work with, people in your own home and family who need encouragement today. And I want to encourage you to use the Bible, which is God's word, to be a blessing. Use it sensitively. Use it wisely. Use it lovingly. Use it accurately. And when you do so, you'll realize that God gave us his word, not something to inform, but to transform our lives. Did you receive something here this morning, church? Can you give God a big hand here in this place together right now?